welcome back to All That's Interesting, the kicking off 2024 with Eating Things Alive edition. <laughs> Today is episode 170, New Year, New Species of Carnivorous Plants Discovered. My friends, happy goddamn New Year to you. You survived all that 2023 shoved in your beautiful faces. You accepted and dealt with all the things you didn't ask for. And from that mountain of to-do lists and stupid responsibilities, you emerged victorious. Sticking your flag into the summit and sighing, can I go home now? Yes, my fatigued business goose, you can rest and have a listen to this episode. May the badass, gorgeous creatures we talk about today inspire you and set the tone for the year ahead. In the first half of the show, we're adventuring. We're heading on over to a part of the world so remote and difficult to access that when researchers are finally able to make their way into this region, they never leave without discovering something or someone completely new. We're going to hop on a plane to a section of Ecuador and Peru where previously only one single species of carnivorous plant was known to exist. This number, my friends, has now tripled thanks to a scrappy team of plant specialists who literally hung off the side of a fucking cliff to find not one, but two new species. I'll have the honor of introducing you to these absolutely stunning killers and where they call home. Then after the break, we're gonna figure out a way, I'm sorry, we're gonna figure out, (laughs) we're gonna figure out how they do it, yeah. We're going to reveal the brilliant biological mechanisms behind how a plant in the middle of fucking nowhere attracts its prey, digests it, and most important of all, we're going to answer the question, could a carnivorous plant break down a human body? Yes. You know I had to look it up, come on. And yes, of course, I found an answer. I'm Jill Chacha, by the way, and if this is your first time listening, welcome to the flock, my spicy business goose. To begin, I'm going to need you to pack your bags in preparation for a place few humans have set foot upon, and that's because it's not the easiest nor the friendliest of locations. It's windy, it's wet, and it's hella high up. And if you've never found yourself on a high-altitude hiking excursion before, good news, neither have I. So we both have no idea what we're doing. Uh, Luckily, though, we're traveling with a seasoned team of botanists from Ecuador, Germany, and the United States. I've taken the liberty to rummage through their belongings and found what we're going to need to survive this dangerous but equally stunning environment. The first thing you'll need is patience. According to a Princeton University study, a whopping 75% of people have mild symptoms of altitude sickness at elevations over 10,000 feet. And those symptoms, by the way, they creep up on you slowly. Uh, Researchers found that they usually start between 12 and 24 hours after arriving at altitude, and then they begin to wane about the third day. So, what are we feeling exactly? Well, don't worry, it's only a headache, which is, quote, usually throbbing. Uh, It gets worse during the night and when you wake up. Uh, Not feeling like eating, feeling sick to your stomach, you may vomit, feeling weak and tired, waking up during the night and not sleeping well, and finally, feeling dizzy. End quote from ColumbiaDoctors.org. Thank you, doctors. (laughs) Look, on the third day, on the third day, though, we should feel right as rain. So, after all this, it's time to get dressed. 
Our clothing options and advice uh, comes from Outdoor Magazine, which, according to their website, says, I have four free articles remaining. I will not be using them. Let's start off with some merino wool or synthetic base layers. And you're going to want to start with this because, quote, a good base layer will set up... Sorry, a good base layer will... I could do this. Quote, a good base layer set will help pull moisture away from your body so you'll stay warm longer. End quote. You'll want to put on a pair of pants specifically designed for hiking as well, since hiking pants have a layer of what's called DWR to help repel light rain and snow. And yes, it will be raining and damp where we're headed. So bring along a lightweight compressible rain pant to slip on over these as well. Uh, Don't forget your Gore-Tex rain jacket, a quick drying hiking shirt, liner gloves, a warm beanie and a buff, (laughs) which is a lightweight fabric tube that can be used as a hat, a baklava, or baklava, the other one was a food, but whatever, baklava, baklava, (laughs) a headband, or even a hair tie, so we get one accessory, that's fun. Uh, And finally, a down jacket. Don't forget your hiking boots and wool socks for your cute little feeties. And holy shit, I almost missed all the fucking gear. The goal is to avoid death and injury, so you'll want a backpack that can hold all your worldly possessions. Usually a backpack in the 20 to 40 liter range will do, and you'll want to surround it in a waterproof cover. You've got your trekking poles, your first aid kit, your sunglasses, two liter hydration reservoir, sunscreen, GPS, water purification tablets, food in bar form, and a map if that GPS fails you. Which it may. Because, my friends, we're heading on over to Amotape Huancabamba. Okay, now if you audibly said Amotape, no, what the fuck now? Okay, don't worry, I've got you here too. Please imagine South America. Thank you. In the very northwest corner is Colombia. Okay, now please point to it. Thank you. Uh, Please move your finger now south, just a smidge along the coastline. Here is Ecuador. And cupping Ecuador is Peru. Now, southern Ecuador and northern Peru share a massive chunk of the Andes, a secluded zone called Amotape Huancabamba. So much fun to say. Say it with me now. Amotape Huancabamba. I know. Now, if you want to go down a stunning rabbit hole of painfully gorgeous images full of lush mountains and the occasional photobombing llama, I highly, highly suggest Google searching Southern Ecuador. You'll see just how beautiful and remote this area is. The photos, however, don't reveal just how high up we are, though. My friends, our journey today is to trek up to the shores of a highland lagoon 3,400 meters or just over 11,000 feet. But wait, that's not all. We're also going to hang from a vertical rock face 2,900 meters up or nearly 10,000 feet up. 10,000 feet off the side of a cliff. And we're doing this to look at a handful of flowers. Yeah, now if that sounds fucking crazy to you, you bet it is. It's crazy and it's wildly important. Because here, beside this lagoon and on the face of this cliff, live two nearly, sorry, two, live two newly discovered carnivorous plants. 
Now, before I introduce you to these metal-as-fuck creatures, I'm going to drop some fun facts on you for context, okay? These particular species belong to a genus of insectivorous plants called pinguicula. I know, we're rolling in great words today. Say it with me now. Pinguicula. Thank you. Now, they also go by their common name, butterworts. Yeah, I know. It's so good. So good. Butterworts. Uh, This is what happens when you name something in 1561. Butterworts. Now, one of the first of many crazy things about butterworts is that before they flower, the plant just looks like a succulent. That's the best way I could describe them. They look, from a distance, like your average house succulent. Both sport that classic look of flat rosettes assembled in the shape of a circle. But that's, that's where their similarities end. If you ever touched a succulent, its rosettes are plump, a little dry, maybe a little fuzzy. But if you stick a finger on a butterwort, <laughs> it'll feel greasy to us anyway. And its rosettes have a wet sheen to them. I know, put a pin in this, okay? We're gonna get back to it in the second half of the show. Now, Pinguicula is also pretty fucking rare. There are only 115 known species, and most of them are distributed throughout the Northern Hemisphere. Only seven species are known to be in South America, and prior to this discovery, only one carnivorous plant was known to Ecuador. It's now three. My friends, head on over to our social media stuffs and tap on today's post. You're gonna want to see this. And after you see this, I'm pretty goddamn certain you'll want one of these. Okay, my equally bedazzling business goose, may I introduce to you P. Jimborensis? Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe in love at first sight, I challenge you to take one look at this butterwort and not say, hot damn. Mm-hmm. Now, if for some reason there are business geese out there who are just oh so busy and you don't have time to stop whatever it is you're doing and fall in love, okay, fine, I could help you out, okay. Please imagine a succulent, okay, whose rosettes are on the longer side and they're a rugged brownish rouge and from its center, a thin, deep purple stalk climbs to a flower that makes an orchid look like a giant turd, okay? This flower is bell-shaped And it's very similar to an orchid, but its color, uh, its petals are a beautiful shade of purple and white. It is so elegant and and purple. It's just shocking. These lovely plants were found beside that lagoon. And if you swipe through today's post on our social media stuffs, you'll see a handful of them just scattered against the landscape. This loud coloring actually makes them blend into the countryside. You'd think purple is a good way to stand out, but not in this case. This is hella good camouflage. Now, next up, please swipe through. Oh God, it's just adorable. It's P. umbrophilia. This dainty looking plant was hanging off the side of a cliff. And this particular cliff was not only vertical as fuck, but it's slathered on the danger with being located in a foggy and rain-swept area. Somehow, Alvaro Perez of the Pontifica Universidad Católica del Ecuador, fuck, I nailed that, and his team, they were able to spot this little one. It's purple, its flowers are also purple, but like a soft purple, and the flower resembles more like something of a daisy. And because 
it was in such a soaked spot, they named it P. umbrophila, uh, which means, quote, rain-loving butterwort. <laughs> so cute. Okay. I'm okay. Now, my brave business goose, you may be thinking, since they're practically in the middle of nowhere, thousands of feet up, there must be just hundreds of them thriving among the mountains. Well, turns out, my friends, the hills are not alive with pinguicula. For one of these plants, only a single population was found, and within it, there were only 15 mature individuals. 15, that's it. Tilo Henning of the Leibniz Center for Agricultural Landscape Research, also nailed that, yes, told EurekaAlert.org, this kind of existence is called narrow endemism. This is when a species has limited distribution in one very particular area. And it has its pros and cons, as so summed up by Henning, Perez, and their colleagues' paper. Quote, The results presented in this study show that the assessment of the neotri- neotropical biodiversity in this location is far from complete. Even in well-known groups such as the carnivorous plants, new taxa are continuously discovered and described in particular from remote areas that will become accessible in the course of unlimited urban sprawl. This is both encouraging and worrying at the same time." End quote. Yes. Yes, my floofy business goose, even here in the Amotape Juan Cabamba zone, humans are slowly encroaching. And needless to say, this could royally fuck with the existence of a plant whose home is only a few acres around a very specific lagoon or off the side of one cliff. But now that we know that they're here, their existence could help us protect the area, which still has so much more to reveal. So more needs to be studied and explored. So watch this space, super stoked for more carnivorous plants. We have to stay tuned. Then after the break, we're going to learn how these well-dressed plants uh, kill and eat. And of course, we're going to answer the question, uh, could they dissolve you? I know. I am so excited. I'm so excited to get into this. This is when it really starts. Stay tuned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart 
and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And we're back. We are so back. And my friends, we just made two new friends who are just dressed to kill. Now, in the first half of the show, we briefly touched upon the fact that the rosettes of butterworts are uh, buttery. They're buttery. In fact, pinguicula translates to little greasy one in Latin. I know. I know, little greasy one. Here we are yet again. We have another pet name for that special someone in your life. I think the last one was mouse goat. So combined with little greasy one, you'll be sure to sweep them off their feet. You can thank me later. My friends, these flat, unassuming, greasy leaf blades hide a brilliant system that can both trap and digest their unfortunate prey. They do this with the help of two specialized glands, just two, which are scattered across each leaf surface. Now, if you'd like to see these glands and this system in action, and I know you do, then just fire up the old tube of you, and in the search bar, please type Butterwort, a carnivorous plant with a killer cling. Again, that's Butterwort, a carnivorous plant with a killer cling, and look for the video uploaded by Animal Logic. Uh, I'm going to pull it up right here myself, and uh, we're going to have a watch and a listen as to how a simple leaf can take down an entire insect. I'm talking legs, exoskeleton, just all of it. And uh, we're going to skip to the good part. We're going to head on over to the 1 minute 48 second mark. Okay, here we go. Each leaf of the butterwort is covered in two kinds of specialized glands. The stuffed glands produce super sticky, gluey mucilage to snare the prey. While the sessile glands, the ones that are directly on the surface of the leaf, pump out digestive enzymes to break down the prey once it's stuck to this superfine glue trap. Larger insects can easily escape the tiny mucilage glands, so the main prey of the butterwort is smaller insects like gnats, aphids, and ants. And the more their prey moves, the more mucilage the plant produces. It's like the quicksand of the plant world. Every movement brings you closer to death. Even though the butterwort is lights out for ants and other small arthropods, they rely on larger insects like bees and flies to pollinate their beautiful flowers. These gorgeous blooms come in violet, red, pink, blue, and white, making butterwort a stunning addition to any carnivorous plant collection. Active trappers, like sundew and Venus flytrap, which we've also done episodes on, rely on both mechanical and chemical signals to get to the digesting. Passive carnivorous plants, like butterworts, rely solely on chemical stimuli to start breaking down their prey. The chemicals that are found in the exoskeletons of any trapped arthropods let the butterwort know it's go time. Okay, yes, my friends, there you have it. Throughout each individual leaf, you'll find thousands and thousands of tiny, tiny stalks capped off with a secretion cell that pumps out sticky mucus that not only binds the insect to the leaf, but it also attracts it. That shiny, wet appearance probably helps lure prey in uh, in search of water. So pretty fucking deceptive. And as that ant or gnat struggles, this movement activates the production of even more mucus and stimulates those sessile glands, which lie flat on the leaf surface. 
These ooze a cocktail of enzymes that start to break down the animal into a soup of sorts that can be absorbed back into the leaf. And my thirsty business goose, get this, these plants not only eat meat, they're cannibals as well. Yeah, surprise, they're fucking cannibals. They absolutely won't pass out the, pass out the opportunity to eat other plants and plant parts. Get this. A recent chemical analysis of butterworts found the presence of alpha amylase, which is in us and found in other mammals. This compound breaks down starches found in plant material, which means if they can secrete this chemical too, a leaf or any other part of a plant that ends up stuck to a butterwort is totally capable of being digested. It's fucking brilliant. I mean, yeah, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and call opportunistic cannibalism smart. Yeah, in this context, please don't take me out of context. Okay. Also smart to avoid accidentally killing its pollinators. The flower, these beautiful flowers of these butterworts are usually a nice distance away from these death traps, which is very appreciated, I'm sure. Now, oh gosh, look at the time. Uh, By the looks of it, my hungry business goose, it seems as though we've covered all of our topics. But one, the big one. Mm -hmm. The one you've all been waiting for because I know you. Could a carnivorous plant break down and digest a human? Mm Mm-hmm, well, drum roll please. Thank you, the answer is yes. Oh, with an asterisk. Uh, Don't get too giddy. You in the back. You're way too giddy. Okay, look. (laughs) If you look at the fine print under that asterisk, uh, you're going to see that it depends on a couple of variables. And fuck yes, we're getting into it. Let's start with an experiment. A very gross and limited experiment, okay? Oh, God. According to Tom Hale of iflscience.com, once upon a time, A man named Barry Rice had a question and an idea. (laughs) For you see, Barry is a professional carnivorous plant grower and runs a blog called The Carnivorous Plant FAQ. His question was simple. Can Venus flytraps digest human flesh? Very simple question. And his idea. My God. His idea to go about answering this, well... I don't know how else to say it other than just saying it, so I'm just gonna say it. Okay, here we go. He fed his Venus flytraps pieces of skin that peeled off his toes during an athlete's foot infection. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry, you heard me right. And I think that's the worst thing I've ever said to you. I am sorry. And unfortunately, I need to keep going. Quote, he cut four equally sized sheets of skin and placed them in the jaws of four Venus fly tr- plants. Mm. A week on, he pried open the mouths and discovered how the contents had fared. Rice claims he had expected the chunks to have remained relatively intact, but he was pleasantly surprised to be proved wrong. The chunks were almost completely digested. End quote from Tom Hale. My truly disgusted business goose, uh, I'm sure you have a few questions. Like, what the fuck, Barry? And what the fuck, Barry? Also, that's just skin. What about the larger stuff? Also, what the fuck, Barry? Yeah, 
Okay, all great questions. Um, I can't answer for Barry, but let's get into the larger stuff, so to speak. The Venus flytrap took a toe like no problem, but what about the bones and organs? Okay, okay, here we go. <laughs> well, there are, I took a toe like no problem, okay. There are about 630 known species of carnivorous plants. And the ones that could stand up to bone and cartilage would arguably be pitcher plants. Quote, defined by their specialized modified leaves that have curved up to form a bug-trapping bucket filled with digestive fluid. The giant montane pitcher plant is often considered to be the very biggest of the bunch, with one record-breaking specimen measuring up to 41 centimeters or 16 inches tall, enough to hold liters of digestive fluid." End quote. <laughs> My delicate friends, the giant montane pitcher plant is native to Borneo, and its average meal includes frogs, geckos, and salamanders. On occasion, researchers have found partially digested mice and rats inside them as well, which means it might be theoretically possible to break down most tissues of vertebrate mammals, i.e. you. However, if you did pass out and fall into the biggest damn pitcher plant ever, it would probably be bad news for the plant. Yeah, get this. Quote, carnivorous plants appear to have evolved Carnivorous plants appear to have evolved to a limited size because consuming prey beyond a certain mass is more effort than it's worth. These specialized plants evolved their taste for animals to help them survive in nutrient-lacking environments. They still rely on photosynthesis and their root systems like other plants, but they need to digest animals to obtain vital nutrients, like nitrogen, phosphate, potassium, iron, and manganese, which might not always be readily available in the soil. As tasty as we might be, carnivorous plants simply don't need the 143,771 calories in a human body, not to mention the plate loads of protein and fat. Even if they wanted to, it would take months and months to break down the body, which by which time, by, by which, it would take so much time, a mushy cesspit of decomposing bacteria would have gathered within the plant's belly, almost certainly killing it in the process. End quote. That was a lot, and that was from IFL Science. So, my friends, in sum, yeah, they could, they could, but they'd rather not. So please, don't feed your carnivorous plant a person. It's just a no-win situation. And thank you for rating, listening, subscribing, leaving a comment. I'm sure you have something to say about this one. Uh, tell your friends. Tell your friends about these two beautiful killer plants in the middle of nowhere uh, and how they do it. And how, you know, you can get rid of your friend if theoretically. Theoretically. It's very important. And a delicious thanks to the folks over at Airwave Media, the podcast network to which WTI belongs. If you love this show, you'll love the other podcasts in this family. And please, stay interesting. <laughs>